The question isn't whether a church has a liturgy, but if that liturgy is biblical, if that liturgy is thought through, and if that liturgy is well executed. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have an excellent introduction to the topic of liturgy, and specifically covenant renewal worship, from Adam McIntosh. Adam McIntosh is the pastor at St. David's Church in Houston, Texas, and he was one of the first several students to receive a certificate from Theopolis Institute for successfully completing six of our courses. If you or someone you know is looking for a concise and biblical approach to the topic of liturgy, this would be a fantastic place to start. Adam is careful here not just to talk philosophically about worship, but to draw all of his thoughts from the Bible, specifically Leviticus, Hebrews, and the book of Revelation. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. The most important thing we could do today, of course, is study the Bible. Uh, that's the most important thing. So I plan for us to do that in some detail today, including everyone's favorite books of the Bible, Leviticus and Revelation. Yeah? <laughs> the easiest books of the Bible, too, right? Okay, well, what is liturgy? Uh, we use this word, I don't know about your, your all circles, but in my circles, the term liturgy is thrown around quite a bit. What does this term mean? What's it all about? All right, well, let's just look at etym- etymologically. Liturgy comes from the Greek word liturgia, which means the work of the people, public service. All right, it's a term, it was a common term, to describe anything that a community of people participated in together. An event or a ceremony where the people work together in cohesion as one corporate body. Okay, And in that very basic sense, everything done in community with special rituals, customs, is a liturgy. All right, This term doesn't just apply to worship, although that's That's usually how we use it, but its use in the ancient Greek world uh, was about anything that the public would do together, okay? Uh, A football game, a football game where fans come together to cheer, to stomp, to sit and stand, to eat and drink, to sing, and even to chant is a liturgy. So the idea with liturgy is communal participation, with shared rituals, shared music, and even shared meals. The word is used in the New Testament in several places, usually translated into English as service or ministry. Uh, And I'm going to give you a couple examples. Acts 13 verse 2 says this, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The word there ministered as they ministered to the Lord. That is liturgia. That's the word liturgy. They're liturgizing to the Lord. Also, 2 Corinthians 9, this is where Paul is talking about uh, 
collecting funds for benevolence to go to the saints. Okay, he says, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. The word there for service, the administration of this service, that is liturgia. Okay, liturgia. So in the New Testament, this word is used in a religious sense, and it carries the concept of service, of ministry. When the community comes together, it's an act of service. And not just to whoever the object of the event is, right? Whether you're in church and your object is God, or you're at the football game and your object is the football players, but also to each other, to your fellow community member who's participating alongside you. And we see that in these two examples, right? Serving the one, what are they doing here? Ministering to the Lord. Leads to serving the other. What are they doing here? Collecting funds for the saints. Both are called service and ministry. Both are liturgy. And in this sense, all churches are liturgical. Every church has a liturgy because every church is what? a community of people coming together to participate in special rituals, habits, songs, meals, and we do this in worship to God and in service to one another. Even the most chaotic-looking Pentecostal service you've ever seen on YouTube is a liturgy. And it looks unstructured, it looks chaotic, but the chaos is the structure. (laughs) So the question isn't whether a church has a liturgy, but if that liturgy is biblical, if that liturgy is thought through, and if that liturgy is well executed. That's a big part of it too. And of course, this should all be for the glory of God and for the benefit of the congregation. Of course, in our common usage, what is meant by liturgical in in the vernacular? When someone says they go to a liturgical church, what do they mean? They probably mean their church follows a pattern of worship uh, that's considered more historical, uh, more formal, more traditional maybe, as some would say. And this is presented as opposed to what? What's a non-liturgical church? More casual, more informal, or contemporary. This is how uh, the terms are used in general discussions. I'm fine with using the terms that way today, just for clarity, but remember All churches fundamentally are liturgical, okay? The question is if your liturgy is biblical and if it is God-honoring. So when we hear liturgical, uh, you might think of a formal service where certain rituals and customs are repeated each week, lots of standing and sitting, lots of phrases being said between the clergy and the laity. We might think of hymns, chanting, robes, collars, candles, Stained glass windows, maybe a focus on the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper usually served weekly. And now some of those things I mentioned are uh, what I would just call uh, accessories to liturgy. Liturgy is technically about the order of worship, okay? Not musical styles, uh, not clothing styles, or, you know, the aesthetic elements that are often accompanied. Um, and though, though those are important, today we'll mostly be talking about the order of worship, not the aesthetic elements that surround that. Some of you, when you hear liturgical, may also think boring, <laughs> lifeless. They're stifling the Holy Spirit. 
with their man-made traditions. And the assumption being what? That the liturgical model is unbiblical. All right? That it's just something that developed over the course of history from man's influence and not the Bible's. All right? We got to get back to the way the apostles did. All right? That's, that's kind of the narrative that, that we hear a lot. Well, I believe that the liturgical structure is inherently biblical, inherently apostolic, and when it is performed well, rather than stifling the Spirit of God, it reflects Him, and it reflects His work. Sadly, some liturgical Christians themselves don't fully understand this. Ask them why they worship that way. You know what they would say? They just say, tradition. It's just tradition. It's not commanded in Scripture, but it's not forbidden either. So we just do what has developed uh, in the church over the ages. It's our way of having continuity with the past. right? And on one level, that reasoning is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing bad about that. It's true. The church's worship uh, has developed over time. It's certainly true that the Bible doesn't forbid a liturgical structure. But there's so much more to it than that. It is tradition, but it is biblical tradition. And that makes all the difference. And if it's biblical tradition, then it is automatically relevant to all Christians, wherever they are. I hope to show you today that if we want to conform ourselves to the image of Christ and to the patterns and rhythms of Scripture, that our worship will be liturgical. It already is. It's just a matter of reforming ourselves more and more to Scripture. It's a matter of taking every thought captive, even thoughts on worship. Okay? So where would we begin to study this? I want us to look at some passages uh, in Leviticus and Revelation, as well as the book of Hebrews, quite a few passages in Hebrews, actually. Um, first, I want to say something about how to read the Bible in the first place. Okay? Uh, one, of, one of the objections you'll hear to liturgy or to the liturgical structure in worship is that it's not commanded in the New Testament. And that's true. There's no chapter and verse that says, here's how you structure a worship service. Or, uh, thou shalt use the following order of worship. Right? Dot, dot, dot. Points one, two, three, four, five, six, and on. No. The assumption with this objection, though, is what? that we should only be looking for explicit commands in the Bible. That's the assumption there. And there's some serious problems with that position. Yes, the Bible gives us explicit commands, right? The Ten Commandments, do this, don't do that. Uh, you know, it gives us explicit doctrine. Jesus is Lord, right? The virgin birth, uh, creation, etc., etc. But if all we're looking for are explicit commands then we're missing out on so much that the Bible has for us. The Bible isn't written like a systematic theology. If it were, we wouldn't need systematic theologies, right? Yes, the Bible isn't a textbook. What is it? It's a story. The Bible is a story, a true story, but a story. Okay, and like any good story, the Bible makes you use your imagination, it compels you to concentrate on imagery, symbols, literary devices, actions and scenery that are described in narratives in the Bible are there for a reason. They're there to help you comprehend and grasp what's being communicated. 
It's like if you try to um, listen to a movie instead of watching it. Are you going to miss quite a bit? Yeah. And probably something that's spoken audibly later in the movie won't make any sense to you. Why? Because you weren't watching and you did not see the full picture. It's the same with the Bible. There's no chapter and verse that explicitly formulates our most fundamental doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no chapter and verse that says, thus is the doctrine of the Trinity, right? One God in three persons. But we deduce that it is true. We deduce that it is a necessity by paying attention to the story. I like to say it's not enough to read the Bible. You must see the Bible. You must use your imagination and see it visually in your mind. If we limit ourselves to only what the Bible commands explicitly, then we aren't reading the Bible as it's written. We aren't reading it like a story. And so you're going to miss a lot. It's like listening to a movie, but not seeing the screen. We want to look for the explicit commands. Do this, don't do that. But we also want to pay attention to the Bible's literary themes, imagery, and symbolism as well. And the fancy word for that. Uh, for this kind of reading of the Bible, is typology. Maybe you've heard that term before. Uh, typology plays a large role in how we approach certain issues in the church. I already mentioned the Trinity. Uh, cults, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. What are they, you know, well, we don't see a, a chapter and verse that, that lays this Trinity thing out, so therefore it's false. Okay? Um, other issues in the church, debatable issues. Let's take baptism, for example. Right? Well, I don't see a chapter and verse that says anything commanding me to baptize my babies. Right? So, therefore, to do so would be wrong. Now, I'm sorry for bringing up infant baptism. Promise I'm not trying to change the subject. Okay? And I'm not making light of serious objections to infant baptism. Right? There are, there are serious objections to infant baptism that need to be dealt with honestly. I'm simply trying to show that no matter where you fall, on certain issues, we have to make sure we're being honest with the language of the Bible, with its narratives and its imagery, and not just explicit commands or the lack thereof. All right. Other people will say, well, there's no command in the New Testament on how we should worship, therefore we can worship however we want. Well, that is extremely wrong-headed. God has always given His people instruction for worship, even to sinless Adam. In the Garden of Eden, right? What's he say? Eat this tree, but not that tree. And if you do, what's going to happen? You'll die. And then as history moves forward, you have Moses, you have uh, the Exodus, you have the wilderness period where the tabernacle system is set up, right? Once again, he gives, God gives instructions for worship, all the sacrificial laws of the tabernacle and temple system. Uh, God is the one who stipulates how we can approach Him, how we have communion with Him. He has never accepted renegade worship. Right? Oh yeah, just do whatever you want. It's alright. Approach God however you want. No. Violating the instructions that God gave in the Old Covenant brought death to the offender. It was a big deal. And that's not done away with in the New Covenant. It's carried over. What's Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11? about the Lord's Supper, about taking unworthily. What happens when you eat unworthily? Paul said many of them were sick and dying because of it. So, our conduct in worship is no trivial matter. 
And all of those things, many of those things from the Old Covenant carry over into the New. That means there's continuity between the Old and New Covenants. We already accept this in, in many things, certain systematic theology uh, topics. You know, there's, there's continuity, of course, between the Old and the New. Um, and it's the same with worship. We often divide the Old Testament from the New Testament in a way that isn't warranted and isn't healthy. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is given for instruction in righteousness. Well, all Scripture includes the Old Testament. Okay, So I think we can look at models of worship in the Old Covenant as a guide to help us understand worship in the New Covenant. And the author of Hebrews agrees with me. Or rather, I agree with him. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, uh, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 8. And we're going to spend some time here a little bit. Uh, Hebrews draws heavily from the Old Testament. We find numerous statements about the tabernacle system and how that relates to Christ and to new covenant worship. And a major theme of the book is that Christ is the high priest of a greater tabernacle. A greater tab tabernacle not made with hands. It is the heavenly sanctuary that Christ now stands as mediator between God and man. So let's look at some of these passages. Uh, starting in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Would someone like to read that for us? Verses 1 and 2. Perfect. Very good. So here's this word liturgy again. In uh, verse 2, uh, a minister of the sanctuary. So Hebrews 8, 2. Right? There's another example. Uh, that word there is liturgy again, a form of liturgy. So what this is saying is Jesus is the minister of the sanctuary. He's the liturgist. Okay, Jesus is the liturgist of heaven. He's the ultimate worship leader. <laughs> all right? He's leading worship in heaven, and all we do is follow His lead. All right? We're, we're to mimic what He's doing in heaven already. Um, I mentioned the word liturgy means the work of the people. Uh, that's often viewed as our work to God. Like we come to God and we're serving Him. And there's an aspect of that that is true. But actually, it's first and foremost God's work to us. The community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all working together on our behalf to serve us. And Jesus, a man uh, with a true body in heaven, right, is leading worship up there. Worship to the Father through the Spirit, and we follow His lead. We merely respond to what He is already doing. Um, this is why you'll see uh, worship services in some traditions, often called the Lord's service, or God's service, or the divine service. It's all meant to communicate that this is God's work to us, to us primarily, and then we merely respond. But here in uh, Hebrews cha uh, chapter 8, verse 2, heaven is called the true tabernacle in contrast to the one made in, back in Exodus, right? Under Moses, all right? So you have a contrast here between the tabernacle on earth and this new heavenly, uh, true tabernacle in heaven where Jesus is. Uh, I'll read verses 3 to 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, 
verse 5, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. What is the writer telling us about the tabernacle of the old covenant in verse 5? What's he say it is? A copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The earthly tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of heaven all along. God tells Moses to build the tabernacle according to the pattern. Moses goes up on the mountain and he sees a blueprint of heaven. And he constructs the tabernacle according to that. So the tabernacle is like a miniature version of heaven on earth. Heaven on earth in this tabernacle. Uh, Hebrews 9 Uh, Verses 9 to 10, uh, skip ahead a chapter. I'll read this in verse 9. It says, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Verse 10, concerned only with food and drink, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Verse 9 of of chapter 9 is telling us that the food and drink regulations, the cleanliness laws, all of that of the Old Covenant was symbolic in the Old Covenant age. The tabernacle was a a miniature heaven, symbolic of heaven, and all of the rules that the priestly people had to follow were symbolic of what Christ would come to do and what He still does in heaven on our behalf. And then uh, jump down to verse 11 in, ver- in chapter 9. Again, this is just, just drilling this into us. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, okay? Uh, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then in chapter 9, jump down to uh, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the author of Hebrews keeps drilling this into his audience that old covenant worship was symbolic of heavenly worship all along. And it's heavenly worship that Christ is now leading and participating in as high priest before the Father. Jesus dies on the cross, comes back from the dead on the third day. He then ascends into heaven, into the holiest place, the true holy of holies. It's like the central location of heaven has been relocated. It goes not no, no longer in the temple that stands in Jerusalem. It has now been relocated to heaven because the God-man is there. Right, The God-man has ascended. And so he moves the central place of worship. And it's, he serves as both the priest and the sacrifice. He's the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. It's his own blood that grants him access into heaven as a man, not the blood of animals. Now here's where it gets really cool. Okay, Jesus isn't the only one who ascends. By our union with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians also have access to heaven. And heaven is not just a place you go when you die. It's a place you go every Sunday when you're gathered for worship. Hebrews chapter 10. 
starting in verse 19, says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author is saying that we now have boldness to enter into the holiest place, heaven, by the blood of Jesus, through His flesh, we're to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. By faith. It's faith. By faith we ascend into heaven with Christ in worship. And if you doubt that that's the meaning here, check out just a couple of chapters later in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 18 says, We haven't come to the mountain that can be touched by hands, but down in 22 he says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of men made perfect. This is the teaching of the book of Hebrews, that new covenant Christian worship takes place in heaven. In corporate worship, Christians join together with the full assembly of heaven. Now, how can that be? (laughs) Uh, I don't know about you guys, um, but uh, Sunday worship doesn't always look or feel very heavenly, does it? Uh, In what sense are we in heaven? What's the author talking about here? Uh, Is he just giving us a metaphor? Is it a cute illustration of something? Well, no. The writer is saying that this is the spiritual reality of what's happening when we gather for worship, even though we don't see all of those details. We don't see it with our eyes, but we should be able to see it by faith. When you come into corporate worship, um, one one theologian pastor puts it this way, it should be as if the roof has blown off the building and you see heaven come down, or you rather, going up. And you imagine yourself surrounded by the angels, and the saints, and the throne where Christ is. That's what we should see by faith, right? Uh, We must believe this because uh, we are to believe what the Bible says by faith and not by sight. And this language isn't just unique to the book of Hebrews either. If you think about it, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're seated with Christ where? In heavenly places. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians also tells us to put on the whole armor of God so that we can uh, fight against spiritual forces of wickedness. Where? In the heavenly places. In the heavenly realms. See, we take worship for granted. We do. We don't usually think of worship as warfare. But it is. We wage war against evil when we worship. And that worship takes place in heaven. And the concept of, of ascension of ascending into God's presence uh, is present even in the sacrificial system as well, which we'll look at in a minute. If corporate worship takes place in heaven, then it follows that the order of the service should depict that reality to the best of our ability. Would it make any sense to say, okay, so here's here's the spiritual reality of what's going on in worship, but we don't want it to have any correlation at all to what we're actually doing. 
on earth. <laughs> no, it wouldn't, we don't do that with anything else, right? We, we live in a culture that, because we're symbolic, ritualistic people, whether we uh, acknowledge it or not, but, you know, go to a wedding, go to a funeral, right? We have rituals and ceremonies that have set formalities that are trying to depict the full reality of what's happening, right? And so it should be the same with worship. Our actions should conform to the actions of Christ and what He's doing in heaven. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's our mission as Christians. You know, we talk about mission a lot and being missional. Our mission is to heavenize the earth, to look at the model of heaven just like Moses did. And now we have the new and greater Moses who's already there in heaven. And so we mimic him and we heavenize the earth and we should do that in all that we do, no less in worship. So how would we structure a service that communicates the reality of heavenly worship? What would that look like? Well, thankfully, the Bible does not leave us without glimpses of heavenly worship. We are not told to ascend to the holiest place blindly. We must know what to expect and how we are to participate. There is no better place than the book of Revelation. The Apostle John ascends to heaven and he witnesses worship before God's throne. And so this is, this is interesting because we usually approach the book of Revelation as what? A book about end times, eschatology, stuff like that, right? And that's true. There, there is a lot of that there, of course. It's a very uh, difficult book and it deals with a lot of symbolic things and we could disagree on that all day long. Okay, But what we can't disagree on is that John goes up into heaven. He has a vision of the heavenly realm, and he sees worship take place. And so the early church, they saw the book of Revelation as a model for worship. A model for worship. And so we can do that as well. Additionally, if the tabernacle system modeled heavenly worship all along, then we should be able to study its order of service to see how God commanded them to worship. And we'll notice when we do that, that Leviticus and Revelation follow the same pattern of worship. So let's start in order. Let's jump to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 9 is the beginning of the priestly ministry. The tabernacle has been erected, okay? And this is giving us the description of what the priest, Aaron, was supposed to do uh, at what we would call the inaugural sacrifices, the inaugural uh, burning of the, you know, the, the first burning of the altar and stuff like that, okay? Um, so this is a pretty big deal, and it gives us kind of an overview, right, a bird's eye view of all of the different sacrifices uh, that God instructed His people to offer. In verses 1 to 6 of Leviticus chapter 9, basically uh, Moses is calling Aaron to come, and he's being instructed um, to call the children of Israel together, okay? Because they're going to get ready to do this sacrifice. Um, and he starts laying out the different kinds of sacrifices they're going to have to do and all this stuff. Um, and uh, let's see, verse 5 of Leviticus 9 says, They brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Verse 6, Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commands you to do, and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. All right, so, so the first step in this is what? The people are called together. 
I'm going to write some of this on the board here. Leviticus 9. The first thing that happens, verses 1 to 6, is the people are called together. Alright? So the people are called to assemble. And then it goes through the next several verses. Aaron has to make uh, purifications for himself to be a fitting uh, mediator between the people and Yahweh. Uh, we're going to skip some of that because he's doing a lot of those for himself. But then once we get down to verse 15, this is where they start offering the sacrifices for the people. For the people. And the first one in verse 15 says this, uh, Then he brought the people's offering, took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people. Your translation might say purification offering or something like that, but it's the sin offering for the people. He killed it and offered it for sin. So the second thing that happens, people are called, the first sacrifice they do is the sin offering. And this is what the, the animal is killed, right? The blood is poured out and sprinkled on the altar. This is to cleanse the worshiper from his sins. This cleanses him, cleanses him from his sins, forgives him, it atones for the, his sin. All right, so they're called together, then sin has to be dealt with. The next thing we see in verse 16, then he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. Burnt offering, You'll some translations say whole burnt offering. We're familiar with that. Well, guess what? Actually, that's a really bad translation because it's not what it says in Hebrew. You know what it says in Hebrew? Ascension. This is an ascension offering. The reason translators call it the whole burnt offering is because that's what happens to it. It's put on the altar and the entire animal is burned to smoke. Hence, whole burnt. But that's not what it's called in Hebrew. What it's called in Hebrew is the olah offering, which is ascension. Okay. So the second offering they do, the third step in this service, is the ascension. Ascension offering. Now, what did I just? What do we just get done reading in Hebrews? What happens when we go to worship? We ascend into heaven, right? So this this offering is going to be very important to what we're talking about. Uh, the, like I said, this offering is burnt to smoke. As a Leviticus one describes this, it, it, Leviticus one shows you how to do the ascension offering, and it says it's a sweet aroma, pleasing to Yahweh. So the idea is that the worshiper is represented by these sacrifices. Okay, In Leviticus 1, you're told when you bring your animal, you place your hand, you press your hand upon the animal. And that ritual of laying hands transfers your identity to that animal. That animal is therefore your substitute. So when the animal is going to be killed and to be burnt, that's a representation of you. It represents you being killed for your sins. It represents you ascending into the presence of the Lord as a sweet aroma. Once your sin has been dealt with, then you can go into the presence of the Lord. And think about this visually. What's, where's the presence of the Lord? He's dwelling as what? A glory cloud. There's a cloud dwelling above the tabernacle, right? The altar is just right outside in front of the tent. So what's going to happen when you have this? I would draw it on here, but I don't have an eraser. You've got the cloud... Right? God's glory cloud here, and then just right out here, you have all this smoke going into the air. Visually, what's going to happen? Visually, you see that smoke rising into the glory cloud, and it becomes one big cloud. 
Not just Yahweh now, but you, the worshiper. Symbolically, you're killed, your sin is dealt with, and then your entire person is burned up to ascend into the presence of God's glory cloud. That's what this is all about. And this is very important to our understanding of liturgy. God is uniting His people to Himself this way. And it smells really good. It's a nice big barbecue. God loves barbecues. All right, the next thing we see uh, in verse 17, then He brought the grain offering. Your translation might say tribute offering uh, or cereal offering. There's a few different English translations of this. He brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar beside the ascension sacrifice of the morning. So the next thing they do is the grain offering. Another word for this is the tribute offering. Okay, tribute offering. And the tribute offering we learn in Leviticus chapter 6 is not an animal. The tribute offering is something the worshiper made with his own hands. All right, it's a, it's a, it's a food, it's a cake. Um, well, how, do, what, how does that make any sense? Well, why are we bringing food that we've baked for Yahweh and then just burning it on an altar <laughs> to Him? Leviticus 3, uh, chapter, let's see, Leviticus 3.16 uh, says that all of these offerings are food offerings to Yahweh. So all of this is symbolic of God eating. He's the one receiving uh, the offerings because they're being turned to smoke and rising up into His presence. But what we see here is that God now accepts the work of your hands. The worshiper makes something. It's not just bringing an animal to be killed on their behalf. Now the worshiper brings something they've made that they had to take time to do. There's an expense involved. And you give your tribute to God and He accepts it. The final thing we see, the final offering in verse 18 he also killed the bull and the ram as sacrifices of peace offerings. Peace offerings, which were for the people. Aaron's sons presented to him the blood. He sprinkled it all around the altar. So the next thing we have is the peace offering. Okay. Now, I don't have, we don't have time to, to go to all these different places, but in Leviticus 7, it explains the peace offering. The peace offering is different from all of these. You know why? Because portions of the animal are cut, cut up, given to the priests, put on the altar to be burned up to God, and then a portion is given to the worshiper to eat. And so what you have, the final offering in this, in this order, is a meal with God. A meal with the priests. Right? You have come together. You've been called to worship. You deal with your sin. Then you ascend into God's presence, right? And that ascension offering is cut up. It's consecrated. Then you give your tribute, which is something you've made. And then finally, you have peace with God and with your fellow man. And you share a meal together. And then the final thing in verse 22, then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the ascension offering, and the peace offerings. We, found out, we find out in Numbers chapter 6, what is the Aaronic blessing? It's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Right? So that's what's being said at the very end. So what you have is sort of this six-fold pattern. So now let's jump to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is... Uh, a book we often look at 
um, about eschatology. Um, and actually, I believe worship and eschatology go hand in hand. And Revelation's a great book to prove that. Uh, it shows us that. Um, we're not going to get so much into eschatology. <laughs> uh, that's another debatable issue. Um, but the first thing we learn in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, is it says, I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit on the Lord's day. The book of Revelation begins in worship. The whole context of Revelation is worship. And what happens is John sees a vision of Jesus, and Jesus calls upon John to write down what he sees and hears, what he's about to see and hear. Okay, so here's Revelation. This is going to be a, an overview of the entire book, and I'm just going to give you a, a sketch of some passages and chunks. Okay, but what you have in chapter 1 is John is called to write down what he's about to see and hear. Next, in chapters 2 and 3, what do you have? Churches. Seven churches, and the majority of them are warned about their need to do what? Repent for their sins. Repent or confess sins. Then you have a pretty big section here, chapters 4 to 18. Now I know that's, I'm not doing a great service to the book of Revelation. That's quite a big chunk there. But what happens in chapter 4? An angel comes and says, Come up here. <laughs> Come up here. John ascends into heaven, and this is when he witnesses worship. Praises are sung, scrolls are opened, prayers are offered, judgments are dispersed. It's really crazy, you know, at the sound of trumpets and at the opening of scrolls, earthquakes and all kinds of crazy stuff. All this cosmic judgment starts happening on earth, right? What's happening in worship in heaven has effect on the earth. John ascends. He ascends into heaven. And you have a pretty big chunk there. Uh, that's dedicated to that. Now, uh, so, so thus far, hopefully you can see, I didn't line these up well, but see how they're already paralleling each other. The people are called together. John is called. The sin offering is the first thing to deal with. What's the first thing to deal with in Revelation? Your sin. The churches need to repent. All right? Then the ascension offering. You go up into God's presence. What happens next? John goes up into God's presence. All right? Now the tribute offering, this, is, this might be a little bit harder to explain, but in chapter 14, so it's inside this section here, in chapter 14, there's talk about the martyrs, the dead in Christ. It says the dead in Christ find rest, and this is what verse 13 says in chapter 14. Let me read this for you. Chapter 14, verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Their works follow them. Okay? So here we have the idea of works, the works of the believer following them. Right? God doesn't just accept you as a bare, naked soul. No. He delights in the work of your hands. Great is your reward in heaven. You receive rewards because God loves your works. Now, He doesn't love your works apart from faith. See, that's the difference. You have to be killed. You have to die to yourself. You have to die to sin. Then you can ascend into His presence. Then He accepts the works of your hands because you've been purified. 
Okay? They're giving themselves, their very lives to God in faithfulness in the midst of trial, these, these martyrs, those who die in the Lord. And that's their good work, which corresponds to the tribute offering. You're bringing something you've made, the works of your hands, to God. Then uh, chapters 19 to 21, the celebration of victory, the restoration of all things, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage supper. Well, what does that relate to? Peace offering. Yeah, a meal with God. Right? You have peace with God now. And then chapters 21 to 22, actually, there's a blessing. There's a blessing given in Revelation 22, verse 7. It says this, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then again in verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the, the, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So you have a blessing. Okay? So, again, this is just a quick skim through the book of Revelation, but I hope you can see that what John experiences in heaven and what he sees correlates perfectly, parallels perfectly to what we find in the order of worship in Leviticus 9. Right? And this is a model of heavenly worship. Well, now, how does this relate to liturgy? In liturgy, uh, a common you know, ancient historical liturgy, liturgy that like we use at my church, follows this same pattern. You start off with a call to worship. First thing, call to worship. All right. Now that could be as simple as, let us rise and give thanks to the Lord our God. And you stand and, and respond in singing. Or it could be a psalm. Uh, a lot of churches do that. I do that. Just pick a, you know, a call to worship psalm that, that is an imperative commanding you to praise the Lord. Right? You hear that and you respond in faithfulness and you stand and sing. You're called to worship just like John was called just like the people are called. Then, after that, the next thing you do, you have confession and absolution. Okay? Now the minister is, if, the, if Jesus is the ultimate worship leader and the liturgist in heaven, what's the pastor on earth? He represents Christ. He represents Christ to the people. He actually also represents the people to Christ. But in confession and absolution, you're dealing with your sin because we sin every week, individually and corporately, right? Are we just individual sinners? No, we're corporate sinners. We're national sinners. And so it is fitting that when we are about to approach God's presence, that we first acknowledge and confess our sins together. And so you bow and you, you kneel and you, and you pray a prayer together corporately uh, a prayer of confession. And then you hear the words of absolution from the minister, right? As an ordained servant of Christ, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven. God is dialoguing with His people through the ministers, right? And He's saying, you've come to me in faith. You've confessed your sins. Have assurance. Have assurance that the blood of Jesus Christ covers and atones for your sin. Uh, the next thing we do is, and this is, again, maybe uh, takes a, a little bit more explanation, but the next thing is Scripture reading and sermon. And how does that, how does that align with ascension? What, what's that all about? Well, the ascension offering, as I said a minute ago, the ascension offering was cut up into a bunch of different pieces. All right, You had to take the entrails out and you had to do things with different body parts even though it all went on the altar to be burned. But what's, what's a word for cutting something up? 
Hearts are being separated and set apart, okay, which is a consecration, right? Consecration means to be cut up, to, to be divided or holy, right? What's, what's it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. The idea that the church has, has kind of uh, come to with this is that re- hearing the Scriptures and uh, hearing the sermon is our consecration. It's our ascension up into God's presence. John goes up and all of a sudden scrolls are opened. God's Word is heard, right? And that's what happens. We ascend and we hear Scripture and we hear the sermon and that cuts us up because again, Hebrews, what's Hebrews say about the Word of God? Sharper than any two-edged sword. That's, that is language hearkening back to the, the Old Covenant system. That's tabernacle language. So that's the idea is that the, the, the Scripture is the sword and this cuts us up and that's what we get as we're going up into God's presence. Next thing we do is tithe and offering. You've been cut up, God's forgiven you, and now He accepts the work of your hands. And and, and in our modern day and age, we do that through our money, right? God says, I want you to come worship me. I want you to confess your sins, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you assurance that you're forgiven. Then I want you to hear my word, and then I want your money. Okay? That's what God says. Because He delights. God delights in the works of your hands, and we represent that through giving uh, His tithe, it's His tithe, and our free will offerings. Next thing we do, you guessed it, communion. Marriage, supper of the Lamb, peace offering. You sit and have a meal with God. Jesus gives Himself to you through bread and wine, and now we sit and have communion with God and with each other through eating. And, And that's really kind of the climax. Everything is kind of working up to this point. Because that's the, that's the big deal. It's like, hey, now we're at peace with God. right? We're at peace. We're at peace with each other. And we're fed with Jesus' body and blood, as He says. Okay? And then the final thing is a blessing. A dismissal. And a lot of churches choose different benedictions throughout the Bible. But a common one is the ironic benediction. A lot of churches still use that. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you, etc., etc. And so you have this, uh, you have this order of worship, this this liturgy that corresponds exactly with what we see in the scriptures, in the old covenant worship and in heavenly worship. And this is what we do. This is the 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 church worships this way and has worshipped this way for thousands of years because if worship is in heaven, then it should look like it, and we should follow its patterns if we want to be conformed to the patterns of Scripture. We talk a whole bunch about community, but our worship services don't always reflect community. When I get up on Sunday morning and I say, the Lord be with you, if I don't hear that, there's no worship. I cannot go forward in the service because liturgical worship absolutely depends on participation. from the community. And if there's no community, there's no worship. Okay? Think of a a non-liturgical service. In a lot of contemporary churches, all the action is up front. And there's not a whole lot required of the congregation. Yes, they're invited to stand and sing, but what if they didn't? If they didn't, the service could still go on, as planned, with no hiccups. Because the action is up front. In a liturgical model, you absolutely have to have the congregation participating. Everyone 
has a role to play. Everyone has a speaking part. It's not a spectator sport. And so I think that's pretty, pretty powerful when we think of community, the need for community, the need to really get our congregations involved in worship. All right? So that they don't just see it as, okay, that's what's going on up front, and I'm invited to kind of be a passive observer. That's, that's not at all what the idea is in worship. In worship, everyone is dialoguing, clergy, laity, and it's all representative of what Christ is doing in heaven for us, and He's serving us in that way. Um, we are the sacrifices. One thing I didn't get to point out was that uh, in Leviticus 9, after all those sacrifices have been performed, God sends fire down from heaven out of the glory cloud miraculously. Um, he also does this later at the temple when the sacrifices are inaugurated at the temple in Second Chronicles. Um, and what happens in Acts chapter 2 in the New Covenant? Fire again falls from heaven. Where does it fall? On people, the apostles. And so we are the sacrifices now. So that's why worship is sacrificial. We're coming to bring a sacrifice of praise, and it's all based on the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, which modeled heaven all along. Now the difference is we have a new heavens and a new earth already because now there's a man with a body in heaven for the first time, and now there's a spirit poured out on the earth. Okay, That's new. That's a new heaven and a new earth. And this liturgy structure is falling right in line with what we see in heavenly worship. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.